Amen. If you have your Bibles, would you take them out and turn to Psalm 45? Psalm 45, the text is also printed in the bulletin for you, and you're welcome to follow along there. But if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open them to Psalm 45. We're continuing today this uh, little mini-series that we're doing, going through a selection of the Psalms, talking about the quest for different things that our hearts long after in the way that they are fulfilled by Christ in the Psalms. And so today's theme is the quest for a king. And Psalm 45 is an ode to the king. So if you're able, let me ask you, would you join me in standing for the reading of God's word today? Psalm 45, starting in verse 1. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious in the princess is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore nations will praise you forever and ever. Let's pray one more time as we open the word of God. Heavenly Father, this indeed is your word given by the inspiration of your spirit to your church that we might become wise for salvation that we might be well equipped with everything that is necessary for life and godliness. And so we pray that your spirit will do just that, applying it to our lives, opening the eyes of our hearts that we might receive it as it is, the word of God given to us to teach us, to instruct us, to rebuke us, and to train us in the paths of righteousness. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. It was three years ago this week, April 29th, 2011, that much of the world sort of came to a stop to observe the events of the day. It was the royal wedding of Prince William and Kate Middleton in London. Perhaps you remember the event. It was uh, so completely over the top, so grandiose in the scope of it, 
that, that it really drew people all over the world, literally around the world, into it to, to draw our attention, to draw our, our time to view this on TV or on the internet and to read about it and just to enjoy and to marvel at the scope of this royal wedding. So much so that even I, normally a curmudgeon for such things as that, was drawn into this spectacle. That I just had to watch and to see what is going on, that this is such a big deal. Well, as we open to Psalm 45 today, Psalm 45 is in fact a royal wedding psalm. This is a psalm that was written to commemorate and to celebrate the wedding of the king. We don't know exactly which king in Israel it was written for, but it is written by a scribe, written for a king, one of the kings of Israel. Many have speculated that perhaps this was one of Solomon's weddings, his wedding to the daughter of Pharaoh, his first wife. That this is written to commemorate that occasion, to celebrate it. In those days, they did not have wedding photographers available for hire. They did not have TV cameras that could record the event. Instead, they have commissioned the poet laureate to come and to commemorate the event in this song. And we see that this is a very glorious song. It celebrates the might of the king, the glory of the king, the majesty, the grace, and the truth of the king. This is a poem that is not meant simply to record the events of the day so we know that they happened. It's meant actually to celebrate the events of the day. Much like our wedding photographs that we take now, it's not merely so we remember what happened and what order things went, but it's to to capture the motion of the day, to capture the feeling, to make us feel as though we're there all over again enjoying all of the beauty, enjoying all of the, the spectacle and the rejoicing and the gladness, the celebration of the event. That's what this poem is meant to capture. It's meant to capture our hearts and the feelings we have. This is a song of praise to the king, to exalt him and to speak of his beauty on his wedding day. And we cannot get very far into this psalm before we start to think that this is more than just a psalm to one of the kings of Israel. This can't be written simply to Solomon, not even to David, not even to one of the other kings, but we see that this psalm is all about Jesus Christ. Ever since it was written, this has been considered a messianic psalm. Even the Jewish interpreters of the Old Testament were a little stuck with this, not knowing what to do except to say, this is speaking of more than just one of our kings. This is speaking of the messianic king, the one who is to come. This is a psalm that celebrates the perfections of Christ, our true king and our true husband. So as we get into it, we need to get into the spirit of this psalm. We need to get into the spirit of verse 1 as we see how he begins here, this poet laureate who's been commissioned to write this. Note the emotional appeal of verse 1 where he says, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready scribe. This, the poet here cannot simply stand back as an objective observer of this wedding day. And he's not simply just recording. He's not taking the minutes of a meeting. He's a poet celebrating this glorious event unfolding before his eyes, and he says, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. When when he sees what's going on before him, he's caught up in it. He's drawn to it. It it sucks him in so that he wants to celebrate this. He sees the king in all of his beauty, in all of his glory, dressed up in 
his royal finest for this wedding day, celebrating the achievements of the king. He says, my heart overflows. This is really the heart of Christianity here. That our goal as believers in Christ is not merely to know a certain set of facts. Our, our faith cannot be reduced to what we might find in a systematic theology to take all of our doctrine and to lay it out in orderly fashion. But the goal is that it will draw our hearts into it. That our eyes will see the King Jesus in all of his beauty. That he will be lifted up from his word when we open it together on Sundays. And we will behold Jesus and, and we'll say, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. Now, you, you can't contain the joy. You can't contain the, the simple excitement. You're just drawn into the spectacle of the glory of Jesus Christ. That's the goal of this psalm. That's the goal of rehearsing here the beauties of the king of rehearsing all of his glories, of just going one by one through these different aspects of his character and lifting them up and saying, Behold your king. Look at him. Stop and, and gaze at him for a while. Train your eyes on him and see this glorious king, that to, to know him is to love him and to consider his, his character, his grace. And so that's what we'll consider here, to try to break this down roughly into two categories. First, that this poem celebrates the beauty of his character. Just in focusing on the king, on Christ, to celebrate the beauty of the character of Christ. And then in the second half, from verses 10 through 17, to consider the glory of his work. The beauty of his character and the glory of his work. First, the beauty of the character of Christ, verse 2. Immediately, it, it brings us in here, it points us, to Christ to contemplate the beauty of his perfections when it says, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. Already we, we get caught up here in the poet's excitement, looking at the king saying, you are the most handsome of men. Now, it, it might be true that, that almost anyone will look good dressed up on their wedding day in their wedding suit, and that you never spend more time getting ready than on that day. But nevertheless, I don't think he is referring here to the physical appearance of the king. Certainly not to the physical appearance of Christ. Based on Isaiah 53, which says of Christ that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Based on that, some have thought that perhaps Jesus, the man in his incarnation, was perhaps maybe a plain-looking fellow. He had no beauty that we should desire him. And yet, this looks at Christ and considers his beauty. The, the beauty of his character, the beauty of, of his whole person, this, of course, reinforces that, that when God looks at a person, he does not look at the outside, but at the heart. And the perfections of Jesus' character give him an unsurpassing beauty. Spurgeon wrote of this, he says, Jesus is so emphatically lovely that words must be doubled, strained, yea, even exhausted before he can be described. In Jesus we behold every feature of a perfect character in harmonious proportion. He is altogether lovely from every point of view. Behold the king in his beauty. This psalm is doing that. It's inviting us to stop, to gaze on Christ, to consider the beauty of his character, the beauty of his personality. A couple months ago, Aubrey and I, on a Saturday afternoon, decided to take the kids to the beach to watch the sunset over the ocean, something we haven't done a whole lot, but we decided to do it. And we got there about... 45 minutes before the actual sunset itself. And it was a bit of a blustery day. This was probably two months ago. It was a blustery cold day. And so we were wearing our jackets. And 
for about the first 40 minutes, we were really the only ones on that stretch of beach. It was, it was really not beach weather. So we were playing in the sand while shivering and waiting for the sun to go down. But then something amazing happened with about five minutes to go. As the sunset was drawing closer, the sun was sinking ever nearer the horizon, and the sky just began to light up with these magnificent oranges and yellows and pinks fading into blue, crossed towards the east as sunsets do. And the water was just this undescribable hue of blue, so deep and, and so beautiful. And all of a sudden, we looked around us, and the beach was filled with people. And everyone who was driving down that portion of the Pacific Coast Highway had, had stopped their cars, and it's as though they had just seen this irresistible beauty that drew them out of their everyday work lives, out of whatever they were doing. They had to pull over on the side of the road and to come down on the beach to behold this scene. All of a sudden, all these people were standing there with us, just looking, just staring at the sunset, watching it go down, admiring the colors that were there. Is that not what Jesus is like? That in his everyday life, when he was here, he had this way of just drawing people to himself. It seemed that wherever he went, he drew a crowd. He could not find solitude when he tried to, because people hunted him down. He had this beauty of his character that drew people out of their everyday lives. From whatever they were doing, they stopped and they came to seek out Christ. Think of Zacchaeus coming even to climb a tree that he might just get a glimpse. Children sought him out. The marginalized and the hurting in society sought for him. Calling, Son of David, is that you? Even people who are blind, people who are lame, they, they couldn't get close enough to Jesus fast enough. He had a beauty that drew people to him. He goes on in verse 2. He says, Grace is poured upon your lips speaking to the authority and the grace with which Jesus spoke and taught. Many people encountered Jesus first through his teaching. People would hear him in the synagogue or somewhere teaching the word of God. And people who heard them, we read in the Gospels, were consistently amazed by the authority with which he taught. They would say, this one does not teach like the scribes and authorities, but he teaches as one with authority. Not like the, the Pharisees, not like the scribes, and yet it was not the sort of authority that, that bruised people. It was the sort of authority that was gracious and that drew them to himself. It was a sort of authority that conveyed grace. Luke 4.22 says, All spoke well of him. All marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. He spoke with grace. As it says in the Proverbs, a, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. It's this picture of, of beauty, fittedness. Every time Jesus opened his mouth, he was speaking a, a perfect word, a beautiful word, a, a fitting word, fit to the situation. With the broken, he was gentle. With the confused, he was patient. With the hurting, he was compassionate. With the lost, he was a clear guide. With the proud, he was unrelenting. With his adversaries, he was cunning. With the devil, he was irrefutable. With the thief on the cross, he was gracious. Everywhere he spoke, every person he encountered, he spoke words of grace to them. Well did they say, as the King James puts it, never spake a man like this before. People heard the words of Jesus. They heard the way he dealt with people. And they said, no one has ever spoken like this before. Everything he says is perfectly suited and perfectly gracious. 
And so the psalm praises Jesus, saying, Grace is poured upon his lips to an infinite degree. Infinite degree, such that every word from the mouth of Jesus is a means of grace to your heart. Every word of God that we encounter in the scripture is a means of grace perfectly suited with grace poured upon it to teach us, to instruct us, to draw us to Christ. In verses 3 through 6, the poet goes on now to, to praise the king, that is to praise Christ the king, because he is a warrior. Not only is he handsome, not only is he gracious in his speech, but he is a warrior who rides forth victoriously and defeats the enemy. Listen to what he says. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty ride out victorious for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds, for your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. He is valiant and brave. He is a powerful warrior. And we can't read this description of Christ without thinking of the similar description in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16, when John, also praising the king, also having a vision of Christ, says, Then I saw the heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He has this vision of Christ in perfect power, perfect majesty and victory, riding forth over his enemies. This is the King. First John says of Jesus that he came, the Son of God came, to destroy the works of the evil one. He came to destroy the works of the evil one. He came to fight a battle. He came to go to war, to destroy Satan, death, hell, and the devil. This is the glorious description of Jesus, that he has a sword girded to his thigh. He has arrows that are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. And I'd say to us that this is a description of the king that we long for. All of us have a, a sense, I believe, in our hearts that we long to be ruled by a king who rides victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Would that not be such a perfect king for us? We all long to be represented by someone who we can trust absolutely, who we can identify with perfectly, who, who we can put ourselves under and say, uh, you are the king and we're, we're glad. We have joy in our hearts for that because he rides and he fights for truth, for meekness, for righteousness. Everything he does is good. He defends his people from harm. He defeats the enemy. He expands his territory. And he does this not out of pride or vainglory or conceit, but out of truth and meekness and righteousness. Is this not the king that your heart would long to be subject to? A king perfect in his beauty, gracious in his speech, victorious in his battle for the cause of truth. Endowed with strength in battle, his subjects dwell in complete peace 
because the king has been victorious over the enemy. Would you not worship this king? Would you not adore a king like this? And he speaks again of the king uh, in verses 6 and 7 that his reign shall have no end. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. It's in this verse, verse 6 here, this is where it becomes absolutely clear that the psalmist here is speaking of one greater than Solomon. This is where it becomes absolutely clear that this psalm cannot be reduced to speaking of just a, a human Israelite king from the Old Testament. No matter how great they were, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever. That expression, the word Elohim, the Hebrew word for God, Calvin points out that, that it's never addressed to God if he's speaking of a man. That word can be used to refer to angels in the Old Testament, but never in this mode of direct address. Never in saying, you, O God. It only refers to God himself. Your throne, O God, is forever. And so we know that this is speaking of much more than a human king. He's speaking of no less than Jesus Christ. No less than God himself, that his throne is forever. Hebrews 1 quotes this verse in speaking of Jesus and speaking of the perfections and the glories of Jesus, why Jesus is greater than the angels. He says, for one thing, the reign of Jesus never ends. As it says in the Psalms, your throne, O God, is forever. So the writer of Hebrews read this and he knew the psalmist is speaking of Christ. He's pointing our eyes in this entire psalm to look at Christ and all his beauty. You see, the problem with our human kings and rulers is that either they're bad, and, and so we look forward to replacing them, or they're good, and we want them to continue to lead, but then they die. Jesus gives us a king here who is majestic and great and glorious, and his throne is forever. His reign will know no end. In fact, he's reigning even now. We confess this to be true. In Hebrews, it says that God has already put everything in subjection to him. He's left nothing outside the control of Christ. He is reigning even now on his throne in control of all things, although, as Hebrews says, we don't always see that. We don't always see that. Living as we do right now in the time of Christ's patience, we still look for that day when his rule will be made clear and made known over all the earth. And that is our confident expression of our hope. There's coming a day when every eye shall see him when every knee will bow before him, when every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that will be a gracious day. He reigns forever. He rides victoriously. The character of his reign is expressed also in verse 6 when it says, the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. That's the character of his reign. That is the way that he rules his kingdom, is with uprightness forever and ever, for he has loved righteousness and hated wickedness, and therefore he is blessed. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. He rides victoriously, he reigns forever, he rules in uprightness, and therefore he and his kingdom enjoy the blessings of God, the blessings of God beyond their companions. This is the character of our king, the character of Jesus, who rules forever that he is the most handsome of the sons of men. He's gracious in his speech, mighty, in his, uh, mighty as a warrior, eternal in his reign, upright in his rule. But now in these last few verses, starting in verse 
10, he points us not only to the character of the king, but to his work, the glory of his work, particularly the glory of his work in taking a bride for himself. The glory of his work in taking a bride for himself, the first half he's praised the king. Yes, he's handsome. His speech and his teaching are gracious and powerful. He's ridden out in battle and he's been victorious. He's defeated the enemy. And therefore, by defeating the enemy, he's established his kingdom in peace. His, his subjects all live securely and at peace. His throne is eternal. He'll reign in righteousness. He'll enjoy the blessings of God. But even all of that is not the culmination of the glory of this king. In one sense, that, that's only the prelude to the greatest glory of this king. He's established a peaceable kingdom, and now he's going to fill the kingdom with joy by taking a wife. It's the wedding of the king here in the last half of the psalm which invites the highest praise of the psalmist. There's a great scene towards the end of the Lord of the Rings. In the, towards the end of the, the third book, after the ring has already been destroyed in uh, Mount Doom, in the fires of Mount Doom, and Frodo and his companions are getting ready to go back to the Shire. And King Aragorn asks him to stay yet a little bit longer. He says, The end of the deeds that you have shared in has not yet come. A day draws near that I have looked for all the days of my manhood, and when it comes, I would have my friends beside me. He's talking of his wedding day. King Aragorn intends to take a wife. And when that day finally comes, Frodo says to Gandalf, in what is perhaps one of the more explicitly theological statements of those books, he says, At last, I understand why we have waited. This is the end. The tale of their long waiting and labors was come to fulfillment. You see, the end of their labors, the end of their waiting, the end of this fellowship was not merely that they would fight the battle to destroy the ring, but the end was to celebrate, to culminate in the wedding of the king, the wedding of King Aragorn and, and Arwen. That indeed is the end. And, and do we not see something of a reflection of the storyline of the Bible in that? That if, if we were to consider the Bible as a whole, that here we have this story of King Jesus fighting on behalf of his people, riding out in majesty and victory, coming to destroy the enemy, to secure his kingdom, to ensure peace. And we get to the end in the book of Revelation and the city of Babylon is overthrown and Jesus is enthroned on high. But that is not the end. Then we have the wedding banquet of the Lamb. That is the end. The end is a celebration, not only of the victory of Jesus over the enemy, but now this glorious triumph, taking a bride to himself, bringing all things to fulfillment. And so here in Psalm 45, in verse 10, the poet now addresses himself to the bride, says, Hear, O daughter, and consider, incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Forget your people and your father's house. This is one reason... Per Perhaps commentators think that, that the wedding of Solomon to the daughter of Pharaoh was what inspired this psalm. Because he's telling her, the daughter of Pharaoh, a foreign woman, he's saying, forget your father's house, forget your customs, forget uh, your people, forget all of that and take to yourself now this new identity, become one of the people of Israel. Forget your father's house. She must make a, a clean break with her old way of life. Now, perhaps it would be that for King Solomon to take a foreign wife would be ethically questionable for him, but, but think instead of Christ. 
Where does Christ get his bride from? Does he not call her out from all the nations, from all the world indeed? And he says, he calls us out of the world and says, we are to forget our former ways. Jesus' calls to discipleship throughout the Gospels always required a radical break with people's former way of life, that he would call them to forget father and mother. Don't even turn back to say goodbye. You must forget your former ways. You must make a clean break with that to follow Christ. His calls to discipleship were always radical in that way. And so we too are called to forsake the world, do not love the world or anything in the world. And then the king will desire your beauty, the king himself. Can you imagine how a psalm like this would have stirred the hearts of the young ladies throughout Israel, much as many young women throughout the United Kingdom and America were, were stirred in their hearts at the wedding of King William, or Prince William, that they would read this and say, what if it was me? Well, what if the, the king himself or the heir to the throne, what, what if I caught his eye and he set his heart on me? Would it be difficult for them then to consider forgetting their house and their former ways? They would say no. No, they'd be eager to do that, to have the opportunity given to them to live in the palace, to be the bride of the king, the queen. They would be very eager to forget their former ways and to make a clean break. And, and we see, is this not also the call of the gospel? That the gospel calls us to forget our former ways. It, it almost sounds bitter at first, that it tells us we in ourselves, we are, are not able to stand in God's presence. We're unworthy. We're sinful. We must repent of our sins and forsake our former ways. We must submit to Christ and bow to him, for he is our Lord. That's the way the gospel begins. And yet, just barely beyond all that bitterness of telling us to repent of our sins, there's this world of beauty that is given to us. He says, you are welcomed in the court of the true king. Because you have forgotten your ways and repented of your sins, therefore you enjoy the beauty of the king. In verse 13 in this uh, psalm, he says, All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold, and many colored robes she is led to the king." verse here, immediately after telling her to forget her former ways, forget her past way of life, now pictures her in these beautiful, glorious robes interwoven with gold and many colors, and she's led to the king. Is this a picture that we have here that, that the gospel tells us, repent of your sins, forget your former ways, and immediately when we do so, we are given the many colored robes of the righteousness of Christ, that we are clothed with his righteousness as a robe so that we can come into the presence of God not in our own merit but in the merit of Christ that we can stand now with confidence and with joy before the throne of God not because of who we are but because of who Christ is and what he has done so we may enter the presence of God with joy so in verse 15 with joy and gladness they're led along as they enter the palace of the king and so this psalm is a psalm of encouragement for us. A psalm of encouragement for us to know our identity in Christ and our position. That some of us are very downcast because perhaps it's your sin that weighs most heavily on your mind today. But perhaps you come and perhaps the events of this week have led you to simply 
be downcast because of the weight of sin in your life that, that feels like a burden you cannot get out from underneath. That feels like it, it stains you so permanently and so completely that you wonder how God could love you. And yet the, the joyful good news of this psalm is that even a foreigner is now glorious in the chamber of the king, dressed in robes interwoven with gold. The most beautiful, most precious robes are given to us when we come to King Jesus. This is the extravagance of the gospel. The absolute extravagance, as it says in Isaiah 54, it says, your maker is your husband. That we preach a Christ who is a king, and yet he's not only a king who would rule over his people, but he is a husband who would love his people. That he takes us to himself not merely as his subjects to be obedient to him, but as a bride to delight in him. As he says, Zephaniah says that your God will delight over you with singing. He will dance over you with joy. This is the heart of the king and the the position of the bride that she is glorious and the king delights in her beauty and with joy and gladness they enter the palace of the king. That this then is the end, not merely the triumph of Christ over evil, but having done so, now he takes the church. He takes the bride of Christ to the wedding banquet of the Lamb to celebrate the victory of the king, to live happily ever after, as it were, with great joy and great gladness in their hearts. And the result of all of this is verse 17. This is the benediction of the poet. He says, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. As he's rehearsed all these glories of his king, how handsome he is and how gracious, how victorious he is, and his throne is an eternal throne forever and ever. He rules in uprightness. And not only that, but now he has taken to himself a bride, filling the palace with joy. And he says, because he has done that, because he is victorious and glorious, all nations will praise him forever and ever. His praises shall not end into all eternity. If we think of the ending of the story of Beauty and the Beast, it's hard not to, to think that there's some nugget of the gospel in that story. It ends with Beauty weeping over the beast while he's still a beast saying, please come to life that I might marry you. Even while he's still a beast. And then he's transformed transformed before her eyes and, and he says O oh beauty you loved me while I was a beast and your love transformed me from a beast into a man so that I might love you in return this picture of the great divine romance where God himself chooses to cast his love on us to draw us to himself while we are yet sinful people while we are yet in the far country separated from him and sinful but he graciously, lovingly draws us to himself. His love transforms us so that we then say to him, may we love you in return. May our hearts be drawn out to you by this contemplation of your beauty. May that cause us to love you in some way that can return the love that you have given to us. This is the true royal wedding. This is the true hope of all those who are in Christ. Not simply a spectacle to be enjoyed, but one that we will live through and celebrate forever and ever on that day.
Let's pray together to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we humbly, willingly, eagerly bow our knee to you to sing of your praises, to sing of your glory, to sing of your beauty, and to allow our hearts to be caught up in all that you have done for us in Christ, in all that you are for us in Christ, in all of the grace that is poured out through Christ to us. We pray, O God, that our hearts will indeed overflow with a pleasing theme that you will draw out from us the worship of our souls to delight in you and enjoy you, O God, forever and ever, that we might know the blessedness of living joyfully in the kingdom of God for all our days. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.